Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, February 9th, 2022, and today we're going to be asking three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days. First up, what does the America Competes Act have for international education audiences? Second, what are the up-and-coming markets in international students? And third, how is New Zealand planning to reopen in the coming months? We'll take a look at these three questions and more today on the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. As we do each week on the Roundup, we take our three questions from themes we've seen developing in the news over the last few days, and we put those into our newsletter that comes out Monday morning called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. You can subscribe free of charge at smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. Fill in your information and you'll get the newsletter direct to your inbox Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. Secondly, this newsletter, it comes out Monday and we give you a chance to uh, get a sense. It's our hot takes on those quick issues of the day that we think are going to uh, be impactful as we go through our international education journey together. And we also take the time, uh, we invite you to subscribe to the newsletter, of course, but also check out our Facebook Lives uh, for these uh, midweek roundups because I drop the links to all the stories that we cover uh, that are links to some of the themes that we cover in the questions. Uh, those are available on our um, newsletter uh, and you can get that uh, subscribe here on the, for the podcast as well on all the major podcast providers. Uh, you can also watch on repeat on uh, Facebook or our YouTube channel. So thanks for being a, making us a part of your international edification. First question of the day, what does the America Competes Act have for international education? This is uh, a, one of the uh, objects, anytime legislation uh, gets passed by either house, there's always some uh, debate as to, well, is this, does this even have a snowball's chance of uh, becoming law? Or what, what's, the, what's the likelihood that we'll see certain provisions stricken or all, all those various things that go on? And prognosticators on the Hill always have their uh, two cents that they, they chip in on these things. But the America Competes Act uh, is the House version of a bill passed last year by the Senate uh, that had uh, to do with uh, competitive innovation and innovation, competition and innovation, maintaining uh, U.S. competitive and in competition and innovation. Uh, the America Competes Act has a number of provisions that are similar, but uh, some that are, are, are very different that will now have to be reconciled in conference committee. Uh, before uh, any bill gets put on uh, President Biden's desk for signature. Uh, obviously, the White House has come out in favor of this one. This includes many of the provisions that uh, were originally part of Build Back Better uh, that failed, obviously, in the uh, last part of 2021 uh, for getting a majority in the House. Uh, we are now in a situation where uh, this House bill uh, has provisions that uh, are geared towards, uh, it's, uh, it's pitched as bipartisan, that it's by business and labor alike appraised legislation for continuing the economic momentum we've seen over the last year, and national security leaders from both parties have said this, that the investment in this bill are needed if we want to maintain our competitive edge globally. So it was, this bill was built on bipartisan, numerous bipartisan elements and on shared bipartisan agreement on the need to act. So uh, again, that's uh, White House statements after the White uh, America Competes Act was passed. 
uh, by the House and looks uh, talks about elements that uh, will make the economy stronger, uh, that will help us uh, compete better with China from a position of strength, and that's uh, encouraging everybody to come together on the bill. Now, there are a couple of provisions that we want to talk about that are of interest. Uh, what, uh, what NAFSA has, has said is that there is now uh, one, a provision, a late amendment to the bill uh, by Zoe Lofgren out of California that was added in that has a, a basically builds in uh, dual intent for STEM PhD graduates that they wouldn't, uh, if once when they're applying for their visas overseas uh, to come to the United States, that they could claim a dual intent that, yeah, they might stay and they might work uh, longer term. And that uh, basically gives them an entree to, uh, to green card status. So that is something that is huge. Uh, dual intent is something that uh, to make a formal part of immigration regulations to allow that for F1 PhD STEM uh, students would be significant. Uh, half of all, uh, all over half of all international students, about 54% are STEM, and it's actually a little bit higher at the graduate level. So that would be a, a significant move forward. There's also a game-changing visa that's been added for immigrant startups. So to allow uh, for those who would come to the United States uh, to have uh, specifically with the purpose of uh, looking to start uh, uh, be, a, be an entrepreneur here in the U.S. and uh, that would, uh, would allow that to, to happen. Uh, that uh, this is certainly something that many uh, immigrant communities would be supportive of. Uh, there's already an investment visa called EAB or an EB uh, visa that has allowed uh, people to basically say, I'm going to invest a million dollars or a half a billion dollars in the U.S. economy building a business. Uh, those, those individuals have, have been allowed in. But something like a startup, a tech startup uh, that uh, may, need, uh, may, need, may not have those initial resources, but may be able to once they have their um, business up and running and aren't um, a board of the state in terms of drawing resources from the state may be able to make the case uh, quite quite significantly that uh, they have could have a lasting contribution to uh, the US economy so this temporary visa uh, category that was added uh, would uh, for those who qualify foreign entre foreign born entrepreneurs who qualify and according to the summary allows the founder to apply for and receive lawful permanent residence if the startup entity meets certain additional benchmarks so it's giving that uh, uh, giving that entrepreneur foreign born entrepreneur a chance to make it here uh, and if they uh, meet certain thresholds could uh, get um, get uh, yeah get get, uh, get permanent residency get a green card so the, this would be a new visa category, a W, a W visa, uh, for initial three years. Uh, they can qualify for this visa if uh, the uh, alien possesses, and when we're going to get away from that language, I, I don't know, but hopefully soon. The alien possesses an ownership interest of not less than 10% in a startup entity. This is from a Forbes article. Uh, link will be in our Facebook chat event for this for this uh, roundup. Two, the alien will play a central and active role in the management or operation of the startup entity. 
Three, the alien possesses the knowledge, skills, our experience to substantially assist the startup entity with the growth and success of its business. And four, during the 18-month period preceding the filing of these petitions, the startup entity received at least $250,000 in qualifying investments from one or more qualified investors, or at least $100,000 in qualifying government awards or grants. So that's a, uh, those are kind of the thresholds to get the initial visa. So uh, they look at 18 months uh, preceding the filing of the petition. Uh, so that time can either be in another visa status in the United States. Perhaps they applied for funding, uh, VC funding for, for their idea. And if that happens, then uh, at the $250,000 threshold or $100,000 in government grants, uh, they could they could apply for this. Uh, they could receive this 18-month W visa, and then after that, uh, would give uh, an extension of three years uh, after the initial three years, much like the H visa does. Uh, that's an extension for an additional three years if the individual possesses at least a five percent ownership ownership stake will continue to play a central and active role in management operations have received at least five hundred thousand in additional qualifying investment created at least five qualified jobs or generated not less than five hundred thousand in annual revenue in the united states and averaged twenty percent in annual revenue growth so some decent thresholds there uh, and then they can adjust to uh, lawful permanent resident status uh, without being placed in a green card backlog if the individual has maintained that w status and ownership interest blah 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 uh, for over a three or two year period preceding the filing of the green card petition so really encouraged uh, to see that because i know uh, there are ways I've seen uh, colleagues uh, who are still on the immigration side talk about. Well, uh, we have some. We have a graduating student with a great idea wants to start their own business. How do they fit that into OPT? Sometimes that works. Sometimes that doesn't. Uh, how it's interpreted and such. And that is, it's usually the company that they work for typically has to employ them, even though they're not the, even though they might be the owner. Uh, they have to be employed by a, a regular uh, e-verified company and all, all the wonderful things that you need to do these days. So it could be quite a significant one. Uh, it could, uh, the, according to this Forbes article, the measure could create approximately one to three million jobs over a decade, depending on factors on that include how government agencies um, will administer the provisions of the bill. So it's encouraging. Uh, there's some, uh, in the, there's also a green card exemption uh, for the STEM PhDs that we talked about in, in STEM fields. Uh, there are some stakeholders, uh, we talked a little bit about this last week, that with the America's Compete Act, uh, that uh, America Competes Act, that say the, like NASA, that the provisions don't go far enough that uh, it should be dual intent, should be extended to all F1 PhD uh, graduates. So NAFSA has come out and said, said that uh, in, in no, uh, no, no, no ifs, ands, or buts, uh, that <clears throat> this, uh, this, uh, ex the, these extended limits uh, would, uh, on, that would allow dual intent uh, for STEM PhDs are great, but uh, we they, they've been advocating for dual intent since Build Back Better was launched back in January 2021. Uh, so it's uh, it certainly w will help uh, if this uh, if this gets reconciled with the Senate version, the Innovation and Complete Competition Act. Um, there there are some significant 
differences. Neither bill uh, includes the language to expand dual intent for F1 internationals on all levels and all fields, uh, which is what NAFSA has been advocating for. So uh, the, ra the ramifications of uh, only STEM international students, um, of what the long-term consequences would be. Uh, I don't know as much if that's as, as significant. Is it gonna deter folks who are not in STEM fields from uh, coming to the United States? They haven't had a significant advantage. Well, they've already had a significant disadvantage if you're comparing OPT. Uh, options uh, of only one year per degree level, uh, as opposed to the three that STEM students have since 2008. So 14 years of history would suggest that uh, they're not that deterred. Uh, but this extra advantage for STEM, certainly in the future, uh, leading to more direct path to green card status is, uh, is potentially troubling. But if you, if you were given the choice, either not having it or having it, the option for STEM PhDs to be considered dual intent, I would take, the I would take that. Uh, that would be just my humble opinion there. So a lot to, a lot to think about there with the America Competes Act. There's still uh, nothing yet uh, on the horizon in terms of when that's going to be reconciled with the Senate version, but uh, we'll certainly keep you posted on that, those developments here. Now, uh, where are the up-and-coming markets uh, for international students? This is a question that's born out of um, born out of an, ar an article uh, we covered last week on the roundup uh, from uh, was coming out from uh, new uh, kind of new uh, new areas. Uh, this was part of uh, study portals and Unibuddy had had produced a report, and I'm going to drop the link to that in the chat as well. Uh, there uh, they they had come up with a list of. A number of countries, Portugal, Poland, Greece, Romania, and Turkey in Europe. Uh, and then also, um, let's see, where, where, where else do we find those? Uh, yeah, Greece and Turkey in Europe. And also in Asian countries, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, Vietnam, Singapore, Philippines, Thailand, and Malaysia. So uh, those were um, Brazil and, and throwing in also Brazil, Japan, and Ghana to the list as well. So those, those are the 17 countries that this study portals and Unibuddy report had identified. And it's interesting to see how this is the most recent of these that you see every once in a while, that uh, the, the, one of the major factors in some of these countries being added to the list were the advantage of high numbers of young people between ages 15 and 24, college age or future college age potential. Uh, that uh, English as a language of instructions in schools and academic calendars similar to Western countries in those South Asian countries, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Nepal, uh, were uh, positives in their favor. So other countries uh, that are on this list, you might do a double take on why, is, why are some of these European countries uh, so highly touted? Portugal, Poland, Greece, Romania, there are pockets, but as a prime market for international students, that's, um, that's not, not something I, I would have thought was on my radar, and they may have some data in here that you want to take a look at. But uh, uh, Turkey, uh, on that list from Europe, is certainly the one that would stand out as, yeah, that's definitely a market you want to have some presence in uh, if you, uh, in terms of an up-and-coming market, young age uh, population, significant in the percentage. Uh, and there, there's, there's just a good track record there with the, with the U.S. 
uh, other, other than the South Asian countries we mentioned, Vietnam and Singapore and Thailand and the Philippines are the other four, uh, and Malaysia from, that, from Southeast Asia. Those are strong markets. Singapore is a smaller population, but do send a good percentage abroad. Uh, Philippines, yes. Um, Thailand, yes. Malaysia, yes. So those are ones where uh, that there's, there's a track record, there's growing interest, and certainly numbers certainly reflect that the, there's an upward trend there. So we'll see if this what 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 um, what what bears out most in this in this in this uh, discussion. There's always someone's always always after where the next hot markets are, and this is just. Uh, Study portals and Unibuddy's attempt to uh, to light, plant their flag in these different uh, countries. So uh, they they make the comparisons that uh, uh, in certain markets uh, that you're looking at STEM, uh, you're looking at computer science, IT in South Asia as particularly of interest. You're looking at Pakistan and Bangladesh, uh, looking at engineering programs more than anything else, those in Sri Lanka and Nepal, looking at agriculture programs. So we've got um, quite a bit of uh, variety here, and they've drilled down a little bit and found some found some pretty uh, good data. If you, if you have programs that match, that uh, might be worthwhile uh, exploring uh, if you're looking for, uh, for secondary or tertiary markets to start investing in and building up. Uh, the Southeast Asian countries on this, on this list uh, certainly provide uh, the biggest advantages to the diversity of students um, coming from uh, different economic strata within the country. Uh, that uh, price sensitive, sensitivity is particularly high among students in Vietnam and Thailand, uh, with one in five students looking at courses with no tuition fees. So uh, if you don't have aid for international students, uh, don't even bother in some of those countries, which I don't know if that's completely true in those markets, but certainly uh, it helps uh, to have a lower cost or at least get some scholarships. Uh, so the, uh, this, the Pi News article that covered this, uh, I'll drop the link in as well from last week. But uh, just for a counterpoint, we look at ISEF uh, has uh, done uh, some uh, recent articles on uh, five emerging markets in 2016. Uh, and at that point, uh, they had inc concluded Vietnam, Colombia, Indonesia, Nigeria, and Iran uh, were on the top of their list back then. Vietnam certainly uh, is one of the, uh, the top 10 uh, uh, source countries for international students in the U.S. currently. And certainly uh, many, many universities have been investing in recruitment there for a number of years. Uh, Colombia, certainly as a Latin American country after Brazil and Mexico, uh, is, is certainly a place where you, you need to have presence. And that's is a six-year-old article now, so it's uh, certainly some of this is born true. Indonesia still struggled to re regain its footing that it had in the, in the 90s uh, in terms of U.S. interest. Uh, that dropped off considerably after 9-11. Uh, but uh, maybe there's a chance there. Again, you've got a, a very young workforce uh, and a young population that um, by 2020, uh, the Jakarta Post predicted back in 2016 that uh, Indonesia will have one of the largest college-going populations by 2020, but it would be one with limited access to market-oriented education opportunities within the country. So I don't know if that necessarily has led to a huge um, 
growth in Indonesian students in the U.S. Certainly, I, I don't think that's the case at all. Those numbers are still largely dropped. But uh, perhaps other countries have seen that uh, and may have seen in Australia being a regional uh, regional hub for Indonesia might be a, a more direct uh, destination for Indonesian youth. Uh, Nigeria, I think, is is that, uh, that sleeping giant in, in Africa that uh, many uh, U.S. colleges are trying to navigate well. And uh, you see the, the numbers beginning to tick back up uh, from Nigeria. More positive news out of there. British Council and the U.K. have been investing more heavily there as well. Um, Iran continues to be one that maybe for the U.S. has historically been uh, a very strong uh, a source of students prior to uh, the Iran hostage crisis in 1979. Iran, Iranians represent the number one source of uh, students in the Uni international students in the United States. But times have certainly changed. Those numbers have certainly dropped. But Iran still, the uh, Iranian diaspora, certainly outside of uh, Iran proper, does represent a, a good chunk of interest in the United States, uh, particularly at the doctoral level. Uh, uh, but you see... Uh, See some inter, uh, interesting developments there, uh, there it, with uh, nuclear deals being revised and sanctions being revised or, and or lifted. Uh, there may be more opportunities to, to see Iran jo join that list. Uh, ISIF's 2018 report uh, focused on Bangladesh, Nepal, uh, Ghana made the list, Kuwait, Egypt uh, were on their list. So... Uh, so some similarities between those, Bangladesh and Nepal, obviously making the list um, that weren't on it before. Kuwait is a little bit of an uh, odd one because, uh, yeah, they have government scholarships, but it's a fairly small population uh, that, that do go abroad and small population to begin with. So interested to see where that one goes. But uh, up-and-coming markets is always going to be one. But the key, I think, in remembering is, uh, yeah, you need to have some data on where students are in the United States. Open Doors does that. The Civis by the Numbers report does that. Some of these uh, new reports uh, might suggest, Unibody, the Unibody study portals one, might suggest that there are some markets that might be good for you. But uh, if, if you don't have programs that students in those countries aren't commonly interested in, then uh, that's uh, maybe not the market for you. So it's all need to be taken in context and certainly having someone to help you figure that out and figure out, okay, is this really a market I want to invest in? Uh, should it be just something that we, we explore doing some virtual events with uh, Education USA or some schools in that country? Uh, how do you, how, what's a good way to proceed? Uh, do you set up, uh, do STEM webinars for students in those countries in South Asia that are, are particularly keen on that? If you have strong STEM majors, then yeah, you do that. Um, just as a trial. You know, doing, you're probably doing these webinars anyway. You have these presentations ready to go that you've been doing over the last two years uh, for, for different uh, audiences. So uh, certainly no harm in extending that to uh, some potential markets where you could, could grow. So it's, it's good to have all the, all the data out there that you can, all the prognosticators' opinions out there that might be good for you. And make, make, it, make your decisions with context because some of these countries, like Indonesia, was predicted to be a, a, an up-and-comer. Uh, it might be for other nations, but certainly in the United States, uh, you have to, have to see where, where the audience is coming to us. Uh, and though what pl pl groups like ICEF and uh, even study portals and Unibody, they're not U.S. focused entirely. Uh, and 
they have a worldwide audiences, so you have to take that in context. And that's an important piece of any evaluation and any decision moving forward. So some good data out there, some interesting reports and how some have, have, some have made it, some haven't. But uh, I think there'll always, always be good to have this debate every once in a while to figure out what, what are those markets that are right for you. And certainly uh, there's no end of, uh, of, of folks who will try and help you get there. So it's uh, just important to keep everything in, in the proper context. Now our final question of the day. How is New Zealand planning to reopen? Now we cover, uh, and this is something for those that might be newer to the Roundup, we do cover, certainly in our newsletter, we have a, a section in there on uh, kind of a global Roundup of uh, how different countries are dealing with international ed issues. Uh, we cover everything from uh, China, China's reluctance to open, reopen its borders to uh, what Australia has done, what the UK has done, what Canada has done, uh, major English-speaking destination markets. But we also go a little bit further afield in that section, and we cover Finland and how had a story in the, in the in the newsletter this week about how Finland has, is changing the way they're doing their visas uh, that's, uh, for students and extending the time uh, that they have to find work after graduation, uh, extending the length of time and that that's uh, that they can work. So that that's certainly. Uh, those are things, why, why, did, why is it important to have that? Because it's always good to know what others are doing, what your competition are doing. Um, and it's also wise to point out where other countries are struggling. Uh, and no, no example of that is uh, more significant uh, than what's happened in New Zealand in the last two years. We're now fully two years into our global pandemic that has uh, wrecked havoc on international education in among many other parts of daily life, uh, as wrecked havoc on international education efforts in many countries around the world. New Zealand is certainly no exception. Uh, their country closed their borders early. Uh, they kept their borders uh, tightly closed with limited exceptions for uh, going on two years now. And only at this point, two years into a pandemic when the U.S. borders really never fully closed. Uh, you could still get in in the fall of 2020. Uh, UK, you could get in in the fall of 2020, even though you're going to be going to school mostly virtual. Uh, Canada had some closures for a while, uh, but they're, they've, they've been back open for at least, uh, at least the last nine months. So there are certain countries that have gone fully open. Uh, certain countries that are still fully closed. China is still closed to international students looking to return or begin studies there. Um, and New Zealand has struggled, frankly, to put together a, a plan uh, that would safely allow them to reopen. Uh, but they've done that. They finally announced that uh, come April, uh, international students would be allowed entry. Now, it's, it's not a, open, all, all doors wide open and everybody come in. It is clearly going to be a phased approach to reentry. It's going to be looking at uh, issues of um, uh, how far along students are in their studies, particularly for those that are returning uh, to uh, that maybe left 
before the pandemic and didn't get back in before the borders closed that, so that they can finish their studies. Those that started, that would have started in person in 2020, early 2020, but uh, had to begin remotely for, for, for the last two years, they would be the next wave in. Then you get students that maybe started a year ago that or last fall that online, but now want to come in. Uh, those that have done on, uh, some of these study center programs that institutions have set up um, in other countries, they'll be the next wave in. So there's actually a five-phased return of international students to New Zealand. It's, uh, it's painful to, to really watch that happen uh, because uh, even though they're going to be requiring students be fully vaccinated before they are allowed in, uh, that uh, they are, uh, in addition to up to 5,000 students that can enter in April uh, to study for semester two this year, uh, that's in addition to ones that were approved in 2020 and 21. Uh, so uh, their October 22 normal visa processing will resume. So they're still nine months out, eight months out uh, from resuming normal visa processing overseas. Uh, that, uh, that's with the goal of enrolling in 2023. So at this time in 2023, there's uh, students who are, have, are coming from visa waiver countries that New Zealand has relationships with, Japan, South Korea. They can come in July for short visits, only for up to three months. So there are some real, uh, again, I said it's, it's painful to watch this, how they are not taking any chances that uh, with uh, despite being a highly vaccinated country already, uh, they're not taking chances bringing uh, large groups in, even though those large groups will be fully vaccinated too. So uh, they are still going to have uh, the opportunity to self-isolate. The one difference is uh, they will have the opportunity uh, that if you're coming in through the border exemption cohorts, they call it, will have the opportunity to self-isolate rather than go through the managed isolation uh, and quarantine facilities that the government has set up. So uh, there's a, it's, a, it's going to be a long road back for New Zealand uh, because of the, the slowness of the reopening. Uh, and it's, it's kind of lessons learned, uh, a cautionary tale, if you will, in terms of how not to reopen, uh, in terms of the impact it has on the international education industry in that country. Uh, you see reputational damage being, being done to, for, to China, um, which I don't know if they care about necessarily because of uh, everything else that they have going for themselves right now. Uh, you, you look at what Australia is doing to itself now. They're reopening. They're expecting tens of thousands of students in the next couple of months coming back to, to Australia. Uh, they, you've seen some call into question all this extra work that uh, uh, international students will be able to do off campus, uh, lifting the 40-hour every biweekly cap for students to work. Uh, that um, that really calling into question, well, why are students actually coming to Australia? Are they coming to work and support the economy? Is that what you're doing? That you want them to fill the jobs that uh, you have shortages in right now? Is that why you're bringing them in? Or are they coming here to get educated? So there's some potential reputational damage being done there. Um, you, you look at what certainly in the United States, we're no strangers to reputational damage in terms of uh, what the previous administration has done to the U.S.'s image abroad, uh, but how how the country has handled the pandemic uh, uh, in a 
perhaps more of a laissez-faire attitude than anywhere else in the world uh, by keeping borders open and, and up until November weren't requiring vaccinations. Now we are for international visitors. So that we got a little bit more tight in terms of how our policies are. But you really wonder what's what what. Uh, how news, how the different where where different countries are on the spectrum for reopening is has been quite quite astonishing to see the the huge uh, disparities uh, that there aren't really there isn't just one way to do it and certainly there's a lot of ways to do it wrong and there are very few ways to do it right uh, but you bungle through it and you get to a point where you can say okay I think we got where we need to be now. So not saying the U.S. is anywhere near close to being uh, perfect in, in, this, in this regard. We've made many mistakes along the way. But uh, I think uh, we're in a position now with uh, colleges for, uh, being able to say, hey, we have international you know, international students have to be vaccinated before they come. Um, we wish that we're, those exemptions were a little bit broader than they are with coming only coming from, from countries where uh, there's less than 10% vaccination rates. Because uh, we know that those students can get vaccine vaccinated shortly after they arrive, uh, so that, that 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 that's the kind of thing that I, I I know hasn't been perfect at all, but it's certainly something in the United States we we're, we we've made some mistakes, but we're we're opening the doors that we need to have opened and in key markets, making sure embassies and consulates are properly staffed. That's not universal yet. There's still a lot of gaps out there. I uh, saw a story this week where um, State Department's going to be hiring more frontline staff that are on non-career basis foreign service officers to uh, be there on the front lines doing visa interviews. And the argument of whether those visa interviews should still exist face-to-face -face in this day and age. Uh, there's a lot of resources that are manpower resources that are wasted on that. So we'll see what happens with this. And uh, obviously, we'll keep our eyes on it uh, with any changes that might impact what we do in international ed. So until next time, wish you all the very best and have a great rest of your week. Cheers.